Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets of great storytelling. My guest today, E. Lockhart, is the author of the New York Times bestseller, We Were Liars, which is also available in a deluxe edition. Her other books include Fly on the Wall, The Disreputable History of Frankie Landu Banks, and the Ruby Oliver Quartet, The Boyfriend List, The Boy Bank, the, the Boy Book, excuse me, The Treasure Map of Boys, and Real Live Boyfriends. Visit her online at emilylockhart.com and follow at E. Lockhart on Twitter. So, E, thanks for taking the time to chat with me today. Oh, my pleasure. Well, first of all, with a book on being a liar and your most recent book, Genuine Fraud, I'm not sure how much I should believe whatever you end up telling me today, (laughs) or even if it's actually you on the line. I'm not really sure. Well, um, you've talked to enough thriller writers to know that we do not always... um uh, exist in our personal lives the same way we exist on a page. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's fun. It's uh, people. Some well, one, someone came up to my wife one time and said, "I'm really seriously worried about you." She read some of my books. It's <laughs> like, how do you feel sleeping next to him? She's like, "Well, I just don't even think about it." So sometimes we can be nice in person and then pretty grisly in our in our stories. I think that's true of most people yeah. who write grisly stories of one type or another. They are, yeah. you know, releasing all of that uh, mental agitation onto the page and then can be sunny in real life. Yeah, that's a good point. Funny is good. I remember uh, I spoke with Sue Grafton, and she was really hilarious, and she writes the Alphabet series, you know, oh, yeah, A's sure. for, I think, adultery and so on. And Anyway, but... Uh, but um, she was kind of this this really fun-loving Southern woman, and I was like, man, it, you just can't get to know someone through the pages. But maybe those are ulterior, you know, personalities that we have, and they end up sneaking out. I think that's probably true for me. Like, if you read my books, you can probably see me in just about any character. Right, right. So the the protagonists are you, the, the antagonists are you, the people who enforce law and order as well as the people who create chaos. Yeah, I like that. Um, one time, many years ago, when my first book came out, I asked my wife, who, remind, who do I remind you of the most in the, in the story? And she said, the serial killer. Can you imagine? She's my <laughs> wife. She's not supposed to say that. And then later she said she was kidding, but you know how it is when someone says something and then says, oh, I was just kidding, you know. Right, there's a little truth in that joke. Well, I read your recent book, Genuine Fraud, and I really enjoyed it. Um, Thank you. One of the aspects of this story, I think, that makes it really unique is the style of storytelling. I mean, in a really, um, in a, well, I would say in a very real sense, the story is told backwards. Mm-hmm. Um, what led you to this style of storytelling? Well, Genuine Fraud starts with Chapter 18, and then goes to Chapter 17, Chapter 16, and so on, so that you're starting um, late in the story chronologically. You meet um, this character, Jewel West Williams, and she's an 18-year-old girl who's been living for four or five weeks in an upscale uh, resort hotel in um, Mexico. And you don't know why she's there, why she's alone, and she pretty quickly goes on the run. She escapes from the hotel. She gets in a fight in an alley, which she wins, 
and um, you kind of follow her as she's running away um, from people who are pursuing her, but you don't know why they're pursuing her, what she might have done, what they might have done, what they plan to do, what the history is behind any of it. So um, then in Chapter 17, you get a little more of, you know, the events leading up to that situation, and then in Chapter 16, a little more, and so on. So I've always really liked unusual narrative devices or conceits. Yeah. Um, we Were Liars uh, takes place in two different time periods and has these fairy tale interstitials that kind of interrupt the narrative but still give, um, you know, kind of meat to the mystery um, that, that uh, perpetuate the, your curiosity and your understanding. Um, and my other books have various other kinds of conceits to them. Um, so I was looking, actually, for a story to tell backwards. Um, I wanted to set myself that technical challenge. Uh-huh. And um, I had been kind of, you know, just thinking about what kind of story architecture would work, what kind of thematic material would work, what kind of character would work best um, in a backwards story. And I ended up realizing that, you know, kind of the the making of an anti-hero would be a story that would benefit from being told backwards and, you know, would be richer for for looking at somebody who is, in many ways, um, the villain of the story, but is nonetheless the protagonist, and um, unpack her origin um, and returning, you know, as you go back in time to the point of origin, the point where somebody who um, commits... Uh, Verily, very morally suspect acts um, might be very much just like you and me. Right. right. So yeah, and I don't want to give peeling back too many spoilers, you know, away. Um, but your, you know, your protagonist is someone where we're not sure if we should trust her or not as the story goes on, and mm-hmm. we find out secrets from her past, which um, which end up getting giving light to what we've discovered so far, and and so it's a really fun narrative. And I noticed. Um, that there were a few references throughout the story to kind of this thing among writers we call like the hero's journey. So the writer's journey or the hero's journey, Christopher Vogler wrote a book about it and sort of Joseph Campbell's um, sort of theory on uh, on what a hero story is about and what aspects create that. And I kind of got the sense that you were tired of that paradigm and said, I'm just writing an anti-hero's story anti-hero story and i like that it was nice because it didn't feel like a cookie cutter story that's been told a thousand times already with the hero's call to adventure and then the refusal of the call and then the entry into the cave or whatever it is right right so well i don't have a whole lot of truck with that structure but i did actually structure genuine fraud um in a kind of classic uh, screenplay type structure. You know, I read that book, Save the Cat, that everybody has read who's ever tried to write a screenplay, I think. <laughs> and um, he has um, a very prescriptive uh, idea of what um, screenplay structure should be. Yeah. Uh, you know, by page 23 in a screenplay, your your hero will be, you know, accepting the call to adventure and um, embarked upon the journey. And right. if um, 
percentage-wise, if you look at genuine fraud, you know, at that, you know, the equivalent of page 23, there is a journey that has been embarked upon and a call. And All right. a call. So I because it's because and the reason I used that relatively prescriptive story architecture was because I needed to be sure that the story moved. Yeah. You know what I mean? In going backwards, you could very easily feel like you lost momentum or like there was nothing driving you, right? So you need to be driven forward while you're experiencing the story backwards. So I told the story backwards, and nonetheless, like the pacing of the story is a, a very, um, you know, fairly formulaic um, screenplay um, energy in terms of, you know, when conflicts happen, when builds happen, and so on. Sure. Yeah. Now, when you mentioned um, being interested in an anti-hero, um, can you tell us a little bit more? I think people talk about anti-heroes, and um, tell us a little bit more of what you had in mind with with that sort of, um, I guess, paradigm or with your main character. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you create an anti-hero who is also someone that we want to be on their side of and also someone that we want to spend time with? Well, I think you have to put them in peril because, you know, well, there are many, many anti-hero stories um, about, you know, middle-aged white guys, um, Breaking Bad, Scarface, the talented Mr. Ripley. Right, he's not that middle-aged. Um, the, and the Patricia Highsmith <laughs> novel, um, Anthony McGillif, uh film, was based on, um, was a huge inspiration to me in writing Genuine Fraud, and the story architecture of my novel touches on the Ripley story in a number of places. You can kind of um, see little moments of homage, homage um, to it, and, uh, and, and, and there's a lot of parallels. That said, so Ripley falls, the Ripley story falls into this tradition of anti-hero stories about white guys who um, get to stand for the human condition or the position of um, the sensitive human in relation to the horrible pressures of society. They get to commit fully reprehensible acts and still in some way be the protagonist, still represent what is dark or complicated inside the self. I've written a lot of books for teenage audiences, and teenage girl protagonists usually are not accorded um, that much flexibility in terms of their morality. They need to generally be um, likable and relatable and even uh, aspirational. I wanted to write um, an anti-hero story like Scarface, but about, you know, an 18-year-old girl um, in which she was allowed to stand up as um, embodying all of that complicated stuff I talked about before that we see played out in anti-hero narratives, you know, that are, make them so cathartic and compelling. Now, do you think that um, it's important for readers or, or viewers on a television show or, or a film that they like the protagonist? It seems to me that, you know, you've mentioned some like Breaking Bad or, I mean, I think of House of Cards where mm-hmm. here's this 
this guy who's clearly a psychopath, but um, but everyone you know tuned in and watched the show for season after season. Um, is it important you think that they're likable, or what? What is it about this the hero in the story? Because you have to walk a fine line. Because if you make them too evil or too reprehensible. Clearly, readers will be like, I don't want to. I don't even want to read this. Right. I think they have how, to be yeah. human. Yeah. Right. And that involves being rounded and holding within themselves contradictions and um, you know anxieties and confusions. Right. And they have to be in peril. Like I said, they have to be in difficult situations um, because when you see a character who is suffering. Um, or who is in a terrible predicament, you want to see how that character is going to get out of it, right? right. Or how that character is going to um, succeed or, or win out. So that's the key. Even if your character is reprehensible, if if the character is human and if the character is in trouble, then there's a lot to get on board with. Yeah, I feel like when I was reading your book that I really started to like the the protagonist long before I found out some of her secrets mm-hmm. that um, that might have uh, influenced that. <laughs> you, you, but you liked her. You liked her even after what happens in the forest. Uh, I mean, at the very beginning, when when we first meet her at the resort. Mm-hmm. She seems interesting and um, capable, right? And I want her to succeed. Yeah, she has, uh, she has many admirable sure. qualities, as yeah. do we all. Yeah, yeah. And so I felt like you know I was really on her side. And when you talk about putting a character in peril, I think it's really important that when we do that, that the reader, let's say, really um, cares about that character, or else. If they're in peril, they might be like, okay, well, so what? You know, I read one book a while ago with this really whiny protagonist, and she just would whine and 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 kind of after maybe a hundred pages, I was like, let's just kill her off and get on with this story. That's not what you want your readers to be thinking when right. they read your book. So. So, yeah, I thought you did a good job of getting us on her side, and then slowly, secret after secret, we find out more about her past. But but, um, but I would, you know, if if I had known everything at the start, I'm not sure I would have been as apt to um, cheer for her, at least as the story went on. And I'm trying not to give anything right. away. But, I mean, I think that's but, one thing yeah. that, that the thriller genre or, or books that are related to the thriller genre that have some of those elements at least has to yeah. offer, which is, um, you know, you can put your, your readers in a position of moral complicity, right, and identification with people who do things that they, as readers, would never do in real life. This can take the shape of of murder, but it can also take the shape of, you know, adultery or um, war crimes or, you know, all kinds of intense moral dilemmas that you see in thriller genres, right? Yeah. Even in in protagonists or in, um, you know, detective figures who are morally um, suspect in various ways. Um, and I think that, that, you know, in that, 
process of reading and becoming complicit, we get really engaged because we are forced to kind of evaluate our own moral compasses. We don't just get to sit around and think that we know exactly what right and wrong is. Right. I mean, a cozy mystery. Right. I love a good cozy mystery, but a cozy mystery. <laughs> right is right and wrong is wrong. Most of the time, you know, yeah. and order gets restored. But in a lot of thrillers that are being written nowadays and even ones from the past, it's a lot um, more, you know, tangled up than that. And so you, you get into this place where you're really um, engaged as a reader because, you know, your sympathies are being played on. And you're forced into a position where you have to think through, you know, morality and and values. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, this movie called Heart Candy, but no. I was thinking of that as you were talking. It's um, it's a story where um, this guy in his mid thirties ends up texting and meeting up with a girl, um, allegedly fourteen year old girl, mm-hmm. and um, bringing her he ends up bringing her back to his house, and you start to see you're like this guy is a complete pedophile and he's gonna you know do something horrible to this girl but then you find out the girl isn't quite what you thought she was either and so suddenly the hunter becomes the hunted and you're thinking i don't know whose side to be on anymore i don't know if i should be on the side of the guy who's clearly has bad intentions with this girl or the girl who's clearly a psychopath and as the movie goes on, you end up flipping back and forth with your That's allegiances. That's fascinating. I would love to. Yeah, that. it's um, it's really a good film, and um, um, but all of the things that you just said seem seem true in in that as well. And mm-hmm. um, so I think it is fun to play with that. I think you always have to have the audience on someone's side that they have some redeeming quality that we, you know, are going to cheer for. Otherwise, oh, yeah. they'll be like the protagonist that. It was in the book that I wanted to get killed off. <laughs> well, one now, thing I found with Genuine Fraud was that when I started to write it and, and to think about it as an anti-hero story, um, I first thought, oh, I'm writing a character who is really, you know, fundamentally different from myself. Um, but then with each revision, I had to bring that character closer to me. Yeah. So... You know, Jewel gets involved in this friendship with this runaway heiress named Imogen Sokolov, and that's kind of the most determining factor in the trajectory of her life, as it's shown in the novel. And the two of them become, you know, enmeshed instantly and feel that they've both, you know, found one another because they are both running away from their families of origin and and reinventing themselves. And there's a young man that Jewel also gets involved with named Paolo, who's also running away from his family of origin for different reasons and reinventing himself through travel. And so that, that like, quest to form yourself and your identity anew when you're young especially is something that I really related to. And all of Jewel's particular... Um, Issues, you know, to do with with class mobility and to do with being underestimated and to do with, um, you know, the obsession with uh, superheroes and superhero origin stories and um, action movies and all of this stuff, like everything, everything to do with her and her personality. The 
closer. I brought it to my own life and my own, um, you know, obsessions, my own um, emotional life, the stronger the book got, right? So I, I could not think of her as other in order to make the story compelling. I had to think of her as me. That's nice, yeah, and it's sort of an extension. And the, the, I like how you said the closer, or the more revisions you went through, the closer she became to yeah. you. In the early draft, the, um, it was, it yeah. was, you know, more structural, and you know, I wanted this to happen, and then this other thing to happen, and you know, the emotional life wasn't as clear as it needed to be, and it only got clear when I really connected to the character and made her flaws my own flaws. And I think. By implication, what you're saying is you had the courage to go back and do those revisions to actually make those changes. I know some people, when they write, they, um, I guess, I guess they just don't maybe spend enough time changing what they've done before or revising it, and they have these brilliant ideas, but they maybe haven't, haven't done as many revisions as, as necessary and people will, will come to me sometimes and say how many you know drafts do you go through and it can be quite a few drafts before i end up with something and each oh, yeah, time I'd say through 15 drafts yeah. before i show it to an editor yeah so yeah. most people would hear that and say what that's crazy but i completely <laughs> understand i'm the same i'm the same way so i think that takes a lot of courage to do that to make those changes and to really shape the story um, you know, to improve it each time through. It's a good encouragement to anyone listening who is a writer to take the time and go through those extra revisions, those extra drafts. So when I was reading through the book, one of the questions that I kind of had was, um, do you tend to plot out your story first or write it more organically? And it sounds like from what you've said, you do a little bit more plotting first than organic writing, and we touched on this before we actually started the interview today. But um, but I have a book called Story Trump's Structure, and yes, they read I it. tend yeah, thank you. <laughs> and uh, yes, so awesome. I tend to Highly try awesome. to you know encourage people to think maybe outside the box and break the quote rules of of plotting and outlining and so on. But you mentioned using um, a program called Scrivener. Tell us about that a little bit. Oh, well, Scrivener is a program that's been around for some years, and it's a word processing program that functions differently from Microsoft Word. And at first, when I heard of it, it was being used by people I knew who were writing multi-book fantasy series, you know, like a six-book fantasy series yeah. that needed to have multiple subplots and story arcs and a gazillion characters and, you know, entire universes full of politics and backstories. Um, and Scrivener allows you to keep track of all of that in one place, but to keep it organized. And so I thought, oh, it's not for me. I don't need that. And, um, and I don't sit down and write a whole outline for a book the way that some people do. And so I looked at it and messed around with it. You can get a 30-day free um, trial period with it, and then I rejected it. Um, and then some years later, when I was writing We Were Liars, um, which is my first real thriller, my first thriller thing that anybody would call a thriller, uh, yeah. I came back to it because the plot was much harder than the more realistic, straightforward um, 
comedies that I had written before. Yeah. And so even though those comedies had unusual narrative structures, it still was not um, the same as, as creating the kind of mystery and intense plot forward motion that I wanted to have in the thrillers. And so um, what Scrivener allows you to do is to see your plot from kind of a bird's eye view. And you can chunk your plot into scenes, um, and I would say scenes rather than chapters, right? So a chapter might have as many as, I don't know, five or six scenes in it, or yeah. maybe it has only one. But um, you can chunk it, and so you can then move your chunks around, right? And you label them, and you can color code them if you're inclined in that direction. I just label them. So I would label them in We Were Liars for my two different time periods and for my fairy tale interstitials, but I would also label the romantic parts of it or the plot, uh, the so- plot and subplot. And so I would be able to see how often I was returning to certain themes or certain emotional um, threads of the story. And I could also yeah. see where certain reveals ha- happened um, by looking. That book has uh, a twisty plot. And so, um, you know, by looking at it from a bird's eye view, I could literally see, oh, this is where the twist is, and this is where the hint towards the twist is, and this is where the red herring is, and all that kind of thing. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. I've used Scrivener, too, and I find that for complex books and stories, it is helpful. Um, do you so, color code? What do you what do you do? Mm, no, I don't color code or any of that. I I just um I collect all of the word documents that I might typically use, say research character sketches, um ideas for how people walk, whatever whatever it might be, just a hundred different. And I dump them all into the Scrivener file and then as I'm writing it I can easily move chapters up and down and um I usually have something like uh, questions that I'm asking myself, and I'll go through those each morning as I'm writing the story and um, try to address them by looking at the context. Um, and so uh, then I like how you can sort of pack everything together and print it out, and then um, I like to work from a printed page a lot of times, and then I'll go back and type all the changes in and and use the review. It's, um, it's a review function that's similar to track changes, but it I don't know what it's called in Scrivener. Anyway, but it, it once you make changes, it's it's a different color of ink. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah. That's so that's neat to find another writer that really uses that program. Oh, yeah. Um, almost everybody I know who's a writer uses it now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's neat. And it's not once that expensive. Once you get the hang so, of it, it's, it's, there's, yeah. there's nothing, no going back to Word. That's interesting. I... This isn't a commercial for Scrivener, but, <laughs> but it's neat that we both, no. you know, have no found, stumbled upon it and yeah, and found it and liked it. So when you read stories uh, of your own, or maybe you watch films, what do you look for as far as excellence in the way that the story either is told or the way that the character is crafted? Um, do you have any f- favorite things that um, maybe books or, or films that you've seen or? What draws you to a certain story? Mm, that's a good question. Well, I'm a big fan of really voicey novels. I really fell in love with um, reading, and my interest in writing was reignited when I was a teenager by reading um, Douglas Adams' The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Sure. And... Um, 
A Clockwork Orange by Anthony Burgess and The Color Purple by Alice Walker. And, all, you know, those are three books that a lot of people would never put together, right? Three very yeah, different quite genres different. and three very different writers. Um, I would add in, uh, you know, the stories of P.G. Woodhouse. All of those are extremely voicey writers. Interesting, whose, yeah. um, Whether they're writing in third person or first person, they're writing in a very stylized and even I mean, Walker isn't exactly playful. Her book is very serious. But it's like she's very aggressively poetic, and um, she's unafraid to render different people's types of speech, um, you know, pushing up as far as you can go, right? Um, And yet still evoke emotion rather than confusion. Um, And, um, you know, Anthony Burgess is making up all kinds of insane slang. And 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 Douglas Adams is um, writing, you know, just the most outrageous, ridiculous thing I'd ever read in my life. It went so far, I couldn't believe that his imagination was, like, ranging as, as wildly <laughs> as it was. And, you know, I also loved Tom Robbins. There's another, like, you know, massive prose stylist. Um, and Woodhouse also inventing slang. So all those people, um, and more, that I'm just not thinking of right the second, you know, I was consuming, um, you know, as my, sometimes in, in high school and college classes, but more often as leisure reading, and that was what was making me feel, like, really excited about what stories could be and what language could be and the way that people could, you know, use peculiarities of language to kind of represent the insides of their heads or to make a story mean more than it would mean if told in more straightforward language. So I started out by really falling in love with that kind of purple prose, um, which can sometimes be empty, but in the cases that um, I'm, I'm mentioning, I don't think, you know, even though like Adams and Woodhouse are comedy writers, um, they're not empty because they create in the reader this sense of, of tremendous like joy and possibility. Yeah, um, I, when you say purple prose, some people might be like, "Oh no, I don't want that," because everybody warns against purple prose or whatever. But yeah, no, but I, I think, I, I'm always yeah. trying to get my students to, you know, so many of my I teach in this MFA program at Hamlin University, uh-huh. which is a, one of the only programs in writing for children and young adults in the country. So oh, if you, cool. uh, you know, there's a million MFA programs, but if you want specifically to write for teenagers, there's only a couple places you can go where the whole faculty will be. Um, devoted to that. And um, anyway, a lot of writers have worked very hard to make their style invisible. And I'm not saying that that's wrong. I think it's wonderful for certain types of books. But um, in doing that, um, they sometimes have lost their own voices. I think that's a right, really trying astute, to let story be uh, sort of purely uh, unhampered by by purple prose. They yeah. they don't know who's talking anymore. They don't know what's specific to their own ways of speaking. So I sometimes push them to go the other way. You know. Yeah, yeah. No, that's to a write, good observation. Yeah, uh, made up slang to write from their from their sports cultures, from their religions, from the way that their grandparents talked, from the you know, 
uh, different uh, kinds of heritage that they might have, um, you know, whatever kinds of linguistic influences might be um, in their speech, I encourage them to amplify those um, and see what happens then. And I like that because voice isn't something that most people talk about too much. And it's a little bit hard to pin down when people say, well, what is voice? And I usually just kind of say something like it's the distinctive style of your storytelling or something along those lines. But but um, but it, it it's, um, it's a blending both of character and quirks and the way that the narrator is going to tell the story and... It's kind of it's kind of refreshing to hear someone really talk about the importance of voice. Well, that's that's definitely how I fell in love with writing. Wow, nice. Now, when uh, when I read uh, your book, Genuine Fraud, I would say that the narrator isn't exactly reliable. Some people talk about an unreliable narrator, and we never quite know if the story she's telling us is true, we think so, we're not sure. How did you approach writing someone like that without letting readers feel cheated? Well, are you talking about the main character or are you talking about the narrator? Well, third-person book. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could say, well, it's from, I mean, it is from her point of view, even though it's not first-person. Yeah, I I would say it's third-person close. Yeah. So we can kind of see, you know, into her. Well, we don't really know exactly all of her motives, but but um, it does feel like it's told, you know, it's her story told closely. It is, but I think that it was essential for this book to be in third person and not in first person. Yeah. Because when you have a first person narrator, that first person narrator is establishing a you know a position of trust. Right? Yep. I'm going yeah. to tell you what I know. Right? And of course, I'm going to tell it like a storyteller. I'm not going to tell you the ending before you, we get to it. Right? But you assume that basically they are revealing um, sure, what's significant the truth. and important in the truth. Sure. Right. Um, and so We Were Liars, which is my previous uh, novel, has a first-person narrator who lots of people have defined as unreliable. But she is reliable in that she is telling the reader everything she knows about this summer when there was a tragic accident in her family. Sure. Um, but she's an amnesiac. Yeah. So she doesn't know everything, right? So she tells you everything she knows as she knows it, and then there's a point at which she eventually remembers it, and then she tells you, right? And I think, but, yeah, and I think no one would feel cheated Right, but you're not cheated because she is playing fair with you. Right. Um, Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Whereas for her to withhold information deliberately or to lie to you is different, right? That disrupts that that trust between reader and narrator. So with, um, with genuine fraud and the story told backwards, I needed to use third person, which allows me to, um, you know, get into her head, but also step back and let her lie to people. Yeah. Um, without my Makes interference, sense. or you know, supposedly, right? If, if I am the narrator, right? So the narrator sometimes goes close in and tells you how someone is feeling, but then pulls back and and just doesn't comment. 
right when some things are being yeah, I said think, or implied. Uh, I think the first person probably would would have been uh, not as good of a choice for this book. Now that I think about it, I feel, I like how you explain that that um, that the third person for those. I'm sure most people know, but first person is where we say, I did this or I did that. And third person is he did or she did, like that. So it's simply stepping a little bit back from But third person can be omniscient, meaning I am an all-knowing narrator. I can go into everybody's heads and tell you how the cat is feeling and tell you how the grandmother is feeling and all of that, right? And then third person close is a third person that really only goes into one person's head. And then might pull back, but is not going into the heads of multiple characters. There was a story that I wrote, a young adult thriller called Blur, in which the main character is not sure about reality, what's real and what isn't. He's sort of going, losing touch of reality, sort of going crazy. Mm -hmm. And in that, there comes a place where you realize that everything that he told you might not be true after all. Mm-hmm. But again, I think that just as in your book, when you had the person with amnesia, up until then, he was telling us everything that he knew as far as he he knew it to be real. And mm-hmm. then when that moment comes, I don't feel... I don't think we feel cheated because we're like, oh, well, we knew from the start that he was seeing things, so maybe what what we thought was real isn't real, but we don't feel lied to. So Right, right. So how, yeah, did you t- did that take a lot of revision to get that to work? It, um, it was kind of from the start I wanted it to be um, something where we wouldn't quite know what was real and what wasn't. And it was interesting in the first book in the series, I did it in third person like what you were saying, and it felt honest. And then the next book I tried to do that, and... It was just, it didn't quite work for the whole book, and so I ended up adding more point-of-view characters. And with the third book, Curse, I ended up writing his character in first person. I think it was first person present, and the rest of the characters in third person past. So mm-hmm. for all of you writing geeks out there, if you're interested in what goes through the mind of a writer as we do this. but um, So each of the stories ended up switching slightly. And um, as you got to know more about the characters, it it wasn't anything that I set out to do. It just felt like the most honest choice for each book that um, that I needed. Well, present tense also gives you a lot of leeway, right? Yeah, it was really interesting. A narrator who's, who's, um, you know, who it's tricky to handle um, or a plot where it's tricky to handle, but you want to be really in close with that first person. If you put it in present tense, then then they don't know the answer to anything. Right? Yeah. You're experiencing exactly, along with them. Are... They don't ever have hindsight. Yeah. And so yeah. that gives you a lot more control, I think. Yeah, it's interesting stuff. It's like a lot of times talking with people, you don't get this sort of deep into the complexities and subtleties of the different aspects of different point of views. Um, but I like it. Um, in one of my books, I started actually with second person. So I, I needed people to really feel like they were present there at this crime scene. And so just that one chapter was in second person where it says, like, you were there when they recover the bodies. And so that's mm. kind of uh, the scene. That was the opening line of the book. And and then it switches. But it's all to me, it all just depends on the story, right? It's like 
we can sit here and say, oh, you should never write in second person, most people would say, and, and I would tend to agree for the most part it's very difficult. But in that scene, it was essential for me to do that, to make that choice. So, again, to me, it all goes back to the story and what does this story require of us to tell it in the best way possible. Right. Although sometimes, of course, one could overthink it, right? Sometimes yeah, it's that's impulse, true, too. Right? You just feel like, you feel like trying second person, so you do. You yeah. know, yeah. Um, I was interested. Uh, oh my God, I I read. I didn't finish it, so I don't know what happens. And don't spoil it for me because I need to finish it. But I was reading the most recent. Um, oh my God, I have to pull it up on my thing. The crooked. Oh, every crooked. Every crooked path. Path. Yeah. yeah. Path. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, so you have your detective protagonist. But you also have somebody who I am very concerned about being um, some kind of terrible criminal, um, who is a second point of view character, right? Yeah, I think I had a number of point of view characters in there, and in that one, there's this somewhat sympathetic character that you're like, I don't know quite what he's capable of, but I kind of yes. like him, and I don't want him to be evil, Right, that is exactly yeah. what I'm talking about. This guy who, yeah. you know, has these kind of pedophilic um, impulses, but doesn't want to act on them, um, and is working yeah, a terrible a job creepy... where he's exposed to all this kind of really gruesome imagery and um, and is trying to figure out how to be a good person. But you're terrified that he will not end up being a good person, and will in fact. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what? Was... What was? How did you? Like, you know, that's that's close third person, right? Yeah. Um, but I got the sense that maybe we're not hearing all of his history right up front, right? You're not giving a whole backstory right away. or Right, no, you do find out more uh, right. about his So you're backstory. holding back as, as opposed to just revealing the whole situation. Yeah, and I think sometimes as we write forward, some people have said you write forward by writing backwards so that as you move forward, you're revealing more of the backstory until finally they meet in a certain moment where everything that's significant is known. But I don't think that always happens early in the story. And um, But yeah, this character, um, I had heard uh, this report on NPR, I think, about how Google, Yahoo, Twitter, and all of these different tech companies have to filter out inappropriate um, material and illegal material and child pornographic material. They have to filter it out, but they don't have artificial intelligence yet that's strong enough to be able to make those choices. So it always has to be an actual person who looks at this uh, site that's been reported and says, okay, that's illegal. We have to take that site down. Or looks at it and says, okay, no, that's actually legal because of whatever parameters. And so, oh, but when I heard this story, they said that there's no counseling available for those people, like like Google and Yahoo and all those search oh, engines and stuff, yeah, don't provide yeah. counseling, and yet these people are looking at the most abhorrent things that human beings can ever do to each other all day long, 8 to 5, and then going home and just trying to go on with their lives. And I thought, that's just terrifying. And what would that be like to be that person and to be eventually drawn into maybe some of these fantasies that, but also be morally against those things, like not wanting to do it? And so he ended up growing out of that news story that I heard. 
Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a, you know, a fascinating character that I don't think you could have as your soul, as, you know, or maybe you could, but like, you know, to make that person the protagonist of an entire novel is yeah, very that would different be, that would than be having rough. Um, him in counterpoint with, yeah. you know, a main thread, having him be a subplot that weaves in. Yeah. Right. So I think in, when we're talking about writing antiheroes, right, you can have these very sympathetic um, and potentially terrible people um, or damaged people or, you know, yeah. uh, morally can... compromised people. Um, but most often we have uh, a person whose overall heart is in the right place Grounded, as, as the yeah. central protagonist. And I really want to experiment with what it would be like to take that more difficult person center. Yeah, I love it. Um, some people say that there are two types of stories, and of course there are more than that, but at least many stories fall into these two threads. One is the search for self, and one is the search for love. So when I was reading Genuine Fraud, I kept asking myself, I wonder if she's in the search for herself, because it seems that there are a lot of lies being told, or is she at her core searching for for love, something true that's that's that isn't a fraud. Um, somebody who's who is genuine and that she can love. Well, if you were to think about your story, is there one or two of those that would maybe be characteristic of your your protagonist, or would you say, nah, neither one really applies? A book that I thought about a lot when I was writing this novel was. Well, I thought of a, there's a lot of references, um, and we've talked about some of them already. But one that we didn't talk about was. Um, uh, this book by Irving Goffman called The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life, which I read in college, and it really affected my thinking about identity. And yeah. this super, super basic idea, which is all I get into, um, nothing more complicated than this, is just that, you know, the self is a slippery thing, right? That when we talk about a search right. for self, we are um, not going to find an answer because um, we present and perform the self in countless different ways, depending on environment and stakes and things of that nature. And so there are a million drags, there are a million codes um, and, you know, ways that we choose to um, present our, ourselves both consciously and unconsciously. And it's not that any of those are false or any of those are true. They are all just different performances of the self, um, even to the self, right? So I wanted to write about that, right? It's a search for self that does not end with an answer, but instead with an idea about what self is. Um, one of my other yeah, influences, yeah. which really turns me on, is the, um, the Incredible Hulk, who I think is yeah. like a nice uh, concrete example of this, right? Uh, he has two selves, right? He he is two selves, and neither self is easy, right? It's it's not Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. Doctor Jekyll is evil, and Mister Hyde is good, and they're both one person. But it's simple: one is good and one is bad. Right. The Hulk is not so easy, 
Right, because he's a, he's a hero and he also does terrible things because he's out of control, and he's powerful and and amazing because of all the rage that's inside of him. He turns into the Hulk because he's so full of rage, right? So he gets to be a hero because he's an angry guy who can't control himself. I like it. Yeah. So it's all tangled up. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't it doesn't sort into good and bad the way Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde do, and so. That's like an example of the kind of thing I was, I was exploring, right? The, the um, yeah, no, I I like that. And when once. I was reading it, yeah, are, you know, the question: Are we all genuine frauds, um, or what lies beneath our masks? Is it, is it a genuine person or a final fraud? I mean, those are th- some things I was thinking as I read through. Uh, do you think that the masks that we wear, either? entrap us or or do they set us free or are they just utilitarian for each situation that we're in oh i think they can entrap us certainly yeah um but they can also be very empowering right to be facile you know the main character in genuine fraud is extremely facile um physically um but also um with languages and with other small, you know, codes of behavior that she's able to adapt and adopt, um, adapt to and adopt. And so, um, you know, yeah, to I think all this is really be able to control and manipulate um, the various versions of yourself that you present to the world, um, you know, can be a great source of power. I went to a small high school. My graduating class was maybe less than 40 people. Mm-hmm. And there are certain roles that you end up being assigned in a high school like that. Right, right. I you mean, get a there's, label. Yeah, right. There's the jock and there is the drama uh, actor and there's the band student or whatever it was, yep. you, you know, the cheerleader and stuff. Uh, and so when I finally graduated and went to college, I really felt like I wanted to try in different hats than the ones that had been assigned to me throughout the years by the relationships that I had. And so I did. I tried out basically just being different, a different person. In what, a sense. what had you been in high school? I was really quiet, right? And I was I played basketball, so I was kind of like uh, in that clique or whatever, mm-hmm. the basketball players. But um, But I was very, very shy and very quiet. And so when I went to college, I tried to be – Come more outgoing and ended up running for the student council and, and things like that that ended up being much more outgoing types of things and and so it was it was very interesting for me to to sort of feel like I was finally free to be who I wanted to be in a bigger context where everyone didn't have four years of thinking about me in a certain way um, and so I think that change can be really liberating for people, but it is also it's frightening and and uh, I don't know if I was looking for my true self or not. I was just exploring, you know, trying out these different hats. And I kind of see I see a little bit of that in your book. Yeah, I think that's, you know, a very common thing to get your head around in your young adulthood, right? Yeah. Is the, the reinvention of the self and the opportunities that that affords. Uh, that 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 time of life affords, right? Uh, going off to college or leaving home, or um, whatever, um, leaving school. So um, 
I think it's just um, part of why people read young adult hmm. um, is that it's a really interesting time of life when you get to reimagine and renegotiate who you are in your the identity. World. Yeah. Maybe yeah. I was when I was reading your book, I was thinking maybe the protagonist seemed a little young to me, but. Um, like I could sort of picture her as being a little bit older and doing some of the things she pulled off, but maybe it needed to be this age because of that search for identity um, is more applicable to someone who's 18 and, you know, exploring, putting those hats on herself. Huh. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I haven't really thought about that, just in that, um, you know, my publisher, 18 is about as old as they go. <laughs> Because <laughs> I no, published I with Delacorte, which is a young adult imprint. And so, um, you know, I think there are things about the story that would have been different if everybody was 22 or 23. And right. part of the reason it would be different is that um, the institutions that shape you, um, and in the case of these characters, college and high schools, you know, are the institutions, but also synagogue, um, don't um, loom as large. Right in your twenties yeah, when you're out of school, much right? Yeah, um, 20s. You have to. These characters are escaping from that institutional institutionalization. Nice. Well, it's good. So it was. I've really enjoyed the chance to chat here a little yeah, bit about your book, you. and I'm we encourage uh, everyone to go and pick up a copy of Genuine Fraud. And it's not. I would say it isn't just a book for teenagers or for young adult readers. I mean, uh, even though the protagonist might be younger, I would encourage people of all ages to check out the story and I think they'll really enjoy the um, the backwards telling of the story and the anti-hero and now that they know sort of the background about what was going through your mind I think they'll enjoy the story even more thank you so much it's been really yeah. fun to talk about it yeah now we want our listeners to find you online uh, where is the best place to follow your career maybe find out where you might be doing book signings is your website the best place, or where would you um, point? My website is is reasonably up to date um, in terms of books, and actually, I just had it updated with all kinds of educator type stuff. So there's a lot of video and links to questions and answers, and that's emilylockhart.com. But um, if you want to actually talk to me, Twitter is the best place. That's the only place where I answer anybody or respond to comments. And that's at e. Oh, Lockhart. at e. Lockhart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm on Instagram and as well. I'm easy to find there, too. E-Lockhart Books. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, and so for all of our listeners, um, you can check out my information on my website as far as my latest books and when I'm speaking at different events at stephenjames.net. And for more information about our guests and other broadcasts, you can click to thestoryblender.com. And always remember, the art of the story is always in the blend. We'll see you next time.